Why don't I start by asking God to help us? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will be at work in us tonight, giving us an understanding of your word and a passion to be obedient to it, so that we might honour you with our whole lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word worship? What images does it bring up for you? How would you describe worship? Could you explain it to someone else? When other people use the word worship, what do they mean by it? On ABC Radio recently, I heard an Australian woman relating some of her experiences backpacking in northern India. She told a story about visiting a local shrine in one of the villages there. Now, in India, the Hindus have many different gods, and they will worship by putting shrines, uh, by putting idols in these shrines, and they'll put food out to those idols as an offering. In this particular shrine, someone had decided to erect a statue of Jesus next to all the others, and this had thrown the elders of the village into confusion. What food could be offered to this foreign god? You couldn't feed him a hot curry. After all, he was Jewish. <laughs> so in the end, they decide to offer him cheese sandwiches. And to ensure they'd got it right, they cut the crusts off. <laughs> but even here in Sydney, the subject of worship can be just as confusing. For many people, worship is about what happens in your weekly meeting. For example, worship is about ceremonies and rituals. It could involve a priest standing between us and God, offering bread and wine as a sacrifice upon an altar. But more commonly, I think, when people think of worship, they think of the mood in the church meeting. They think of the music. If it feels good to me, then we must be worshipping. Tonight, as we continue to look at Romans, Paul wants to talk about what our worship should be like. He wants to show us worship God's way. Let's have a look together at that passage in Romans 12, starting at verse 1. The first verse is a critical verse in understanding worship. So read with me in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. First of all, I want you to notice the therefore at the beginning of that sentence. As a wise man once said, you have to ask what the therefore is there for. It's there to link the ideas before with the ideas that come after. It's there to show us that this passage is the conclusion to the first 11 chapters that we've looked at in Romans. And as I prepared this sermon, I struggled with how to neatly summarise 11 chapters of Scripture. But I think that Paul has already done that there in the verse when he writes, in view of God's mercy. Because what we've looked at over the past six months in Romans is the sheer magnitude of God's mercy. Jew and Gentile, all of us have turned away from God and rebelled against him. Alike, we've been forgiven, renewed, justified out of his sheer mercy and grace. God's mercy to us is like having a debt repaid, a debt cancelled that we could never have repaid. The law, as we've seen, stood like a barricade in our way. 
The Jews were locked in by God's law and it brought them under judgment. As Gentiles, we were locked out of God's promises by the law and strangers to him. But now God has rescued us. We are welcomed as children of God and heirs of eternal life. So the take-home message of the first 11 chapters is this. The message about Jesus, the gospel, is good news. It is a message about God's mercy. And worship is our way of expressing gratitude, of saying thank you to God for his mercy. I learned about this many years ago when I first became a Christian. I was invited to hear a Bible talk. And when the speaker said, we don't do good deeds to get into God's kingdom, we do them because we are in God's kingdom, I sat up because I'd figured he'd made a real gaffe. And at any moment, he'd realise it and correct himself. But I was wide of the mark. In fact... I was 180 degrees off the mark. You can't earn or deserve mercy. Mercy by its very nature is shown to the unworthy and the undeserving. Some popular ideas about worship fail to understand this. Often people have an expectation that if we can just get our worship right, then God will be present in some special and powerful way. As someone put it to me recently, God will intensify his presence. But this is also 180 degrees off the mark. Worship is not a way of earning God's favour or blessing. In worship, we do not draw near to God. In Christ, God has drawn near to us. Worship is a response to the God who has been merciful to us. Which leaves the question, how do we express our gratitude to God? As we read on in verse 1, read it with me, Paul tells us that in view of this mercy, in verse 1, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The language of the verse is perhaps so familiar that the strangeness of it doesn't strike us. In the ancient world, words like offerings and sacrifices describe what goes on in a temple. A sacrifice has to be living to begin with, of course, but what makes it a sacrifice is that it's put to death. Paul's urging us to offer our bodies, that is, our whole person, our whole life, as a living sacrifice, that is, in an ongoing way. Do you see the radical idea of worship this is? Worship is not about bloodletting in a temple. It's not something that is restricted to what goes on inside a church building. And it's not especially related to our singing. True worship extends to all places and all activities. This kind of worship, in Paul's language, is holy and pleasing to God. But you and I might put it that this is worship God's way. I can't put it better than John Calvin. Let all the parts of our life Strive towards God as our rightful goal. Does this idea of worship have implications for work? Well, yes. For relationships? Well, of course. For how you treat people when you're out shopping. For how you drive your car, or for the way you use your money, or for conversations, or for how we plan for the future. Well, of course, it includes all these things. Worship is not a token thing. It's not a matter of 
giving God a little bit and keeping the rest for ourselves. We respond by giving God ourselves, our whole selves, our whole lives. Now, I wonder whether, like me, you find this not only a bit challenging, but uncomfortable. And at bottom, I think this represents a failure to grasp the sheer immensity of mercy that God has shown us. Did Christ really die for us that we might respond with worship for one hour on Sunday? Did Christ really die for us so that we might respond with a few songs on Sunday, sung with great gusto? Do we understand God's mercy to us? This is not only the very foundation of worship, It's one of the most important questions any one of us will ever face. If we do know God's mercy, then the only appropriate response is that all the parts of our life strive towards God as the rightful goal. I remember some years ago now, I was invited to a church weekend away, and it sounded quite appealing. But when I heard the theme for the weekend, which was radical discipleship, my enthusiasm somewhat dropped off. I wanted something more comfortable than radical discipleship, something less challenging. I mean, why couldn't we look at forgiveness or mercy? Something that would make me feel comfortable. I'd forgotten the earlier lesson. We do good deeds because we are in God's kingdom. I needed to repent. I needed to ask God to forgive my apathy. It was stupid, really, wasn't it? You don't go and have a wash just to play in the mud again. God's mercy is never a licence for immorality or some excuse for our apathy. God's forgiveness leads us to radical discipleship. It leads us to a life of worship. But to worship God's way, as we've looked at, offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, means we will need to be transformed as people. Worshipping God in this way isn't something we do naturally. I don't think the Romans did it naturally either. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to urge them to do it. And Paul spells out how this transformation occurs. The key is there are two alternative mindsets, or if you like, two value systems. One is the world will try and squeeze us into its way of thinking. And our only alternative is for God to transform us by our understanding of the gospel. You'll see that there in verse 2 of that passage. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now let's understand what this means. John Stott very helpfully points out that repudiating the pattern of this world does not, of course, mean the people of this world, for we're called to love and serve them, But the values of this world, it's godless materialism, it's vanity and hypocrisy. We're told not to love these, but to reject them. Social groups, institutions, traditions and cultural norms can all influence our thinking and ultimately our behaviour. But we're not to float along like a dead dog in the tide. 
The alternative to conforming to this world, to blending in with whatever we find around us, is not to withdraw from the world, but to be transformed. And that occurs, Paul explains in that verse, by the renewing of your mind. So Paul's logic is this. As our minds are renewed, we are then transformed to worship God in every aspect of life. What we so desperately need is renewed minds. We need minds that are shaped by our knowledge of God and an understanding of his will. We need minds that are informed by the gospel. Paul wants us to grasp the riches of God's mercy to us in Christ. He wants us to know God as he's revealed in the gospel. His love, his faithfulness to his promises, his justice, his mercy. He wants us to understand that God's plans for this world are centred on Christ. He wants us to have insight, to recognise that now is the time of God's amnesty for people of every nation. He wants us to know the life of love and service for which we've been saved. Now, does this sound familiar? It really should. It's what we've looked at in Romans. Paul wants us to understand the gospel message. No wonder Paul was so keen to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome. It not only saves people, it brings them to maturity. It not only brings us into God's kingdom, it teaches us to live as people in that kingdom. As our minds are renewed by our understanding of the gospel, we will be transformed to live a life of worship. And the outcome? Well, God's will is no longer mere abstract information that we might possess. It is truth that we've lived. You'll see it there at the end of verse 2. In Paul's words, we shall be enabled to test and approve in our own experience what God's will is and find it good, pleasing and perfect. Every so often I love to borrow an arty foreign language film just to remind my wife that there are hidden depths of sophistication to my character. (laughs) Recently I hired a film called Goodbye Lenin. It's set in communist East Germany in 1989, just before the Berlin Wall came down. For those of you who are too young to remember, Germany for some years was divided. Those who lived in the East lived under an oppressive regime and people were prevented from escaping by a wall. And if you tried to escape, you were shot. The story of the film centres around a woman named Christiane and her son, Alex. Christiane is a pillar of communist society. She's widely admired, given awards for service. But then, Christiane has an accident. She falls into a coma And during this time, those momentous events of 1989 occur. When she wakes up, her world has changed forever. However, Christiane's health remains so precarious that her son Alex is told to spare her any shocks or anxieties of any kind. And so, he decides to keep his mother in the dark about what has occurred and recreates the old East Germany in the house in which they live. He secretly feeds old videos into the television and enlists the support of neighbours and colleagues to maintain the illusion that the world is the same. It's a good film and at times quite amusing. It's easy to see a parallel with our situation. When Christ died for us, executed like a criminal, something far more significant 
than the Berlin Wall falling occurred. We were rescued from something inescapable, God's fierce anger for the way we've ignored him. The world has changed. The political regime has been overturned. I may once have run my own life, my own way, without God, but God now calls on people everywhere to recognise his king, his Messiah. One day, all of us will have to give an account to him. Every knee will bow before him. And friends, that includes you and I. Christians sometimes, however, live in a goodbye Lenin world like Alex's mum. We're called to live in the new era with renewed minds, minds deeply impressed by the gospel, transforming us to live lives of worship. But all too often, our whole mindset is caught up in the old era, the era when we were ignorant about Christ. We may front up to church on a Sunday, but our lives are all but indistinguishable from those around us. So here's the challenge for us. Are you being conformed or transformed? Does the gospel engross your attention and fill your horizons? You see, we need to be people who have a deep and abiding commitment to work hard at understanding our Bible. We need to be people who have a real hunger and thirst to change our lives in light of our understanding. Well, finally, in verses 3 to 8, Paul goes on to describe just one example of worship, worship in our relationships with other Christians. How do renewed minds think about our relationships with other Christians? Well, read with me in verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Renewed minds are not proud. They are clear-headed or sober in their thinking. And Paul gives two reasons. Firstly, we are to view ourselves in verse 3 according to the measure of faith. Don't misread what Paul's writing here. He's not using the word measure to mean quantity. He's using it to mean an instrument used to measure something. He's not asking us to view ourselves according to the quantity of faith we have, as though faith can be measured out in kilograms or litres. No, friends, when evaluating ourselves, the ultimate standard, the gold standard test, is faith. In Romans, we've seen that faith is the faith of Abraham. It's the trust in a God who justifies the ungodly, the reliance on a God who forgives sinners. That's the kind of faith that you either have or you don't have. Paul's warning us, if you know you are a forgiven sinner, don't brag about how much better you are than other forgiven sinners. And secondly, renewed minds will recognise that with other Christians, we're now part of a whole. Paul uses the example of a body you can see there in verses 4 and 5. Read it with me. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and by members there, he means different body parts, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. 
A few years ago, I travelled through England and I remember a church building in one part of the English countryside. It's quite a large building, built during the Middle Ages. But I remember it well because in the middle of the church, there was a wall made out of wood. It divided the front from the back. If you were wealthy, noble or some powerful figure in the church, you could sit in the front section close to the action. If you were part of the unwashed masses, you got to see everything through a small door in the wall. Now, I wondered what it would be like being a member of a church like that. To sit at the front, you were clearly somebody pretty important. And to sit at the back would engender a sense of exclusion. Now, at Chatswood, we don't have a wooden wall in the building that separates the so-called important people from the so-called less important people. But it is possible to create divisions. As a group, we don't have common race or accents. We don't have common incomes or jobs or anything of that sort. We don't have the same personality. We don't have the same role during our meetings or during the week. We don't have the same talents and abilities. We don't have what we might see as an outstanding service record here. We've got to be careful that these things don't create divisions, invisible walls, if you like, walls in our minds, so that some people consider themselves more important than others. Pride is a great danger for the Christian and also for our congregation. Instead of this, we are to use the gifts and abilities that God has given us to humbly serve others. Paul gives a brief list of some of the gifts that people may have in verses 6 to 8. And you'll see there that he mentions prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading and showing mercy. His point is not to give you a list so that you can identify your gift. His point is that each of us will have different things that we will do. Some people will be good at the upfront things like teaching or leadership. Some will be in a position to do things that will often go unnoticed by many people. Things like giving or encouragement. What you need to do is use the gifts that God has given you to build up others. Does our worship of God demonstrate itself in humble service of his people? One of the hallmarks of the modern mindset is individualism. We instinctively focus on the right of the individual to do or say whatever they choose. And this mindset has inevitably spread into our thinking. My commitment to God's people has been replaced by the idea that a church should serve and fulfil me, providing the teaching, music, fellowship and subculture that I desire. Yet this is only really an expression of our sinfulness, a desire to put ourselves at the centre of our own lives. When God rescues people, he puts them together to live for the benefit of one another. This means that my greatest concern should not be how the congregation can serve me, but how I may best serve the congregation using the gifts that God has given me. When we reach Romans 12, this is not some 
trivial space filler toward the end of the letter? How should we respond to a passage such as this? During the week, a friend of mine was telling me that he'd once given an hour-long seminar on worship and he'd really tried to hammer away at the point that worship extends to all activities and all places. One response was from a woman who came up to him at the end and said, look, thank you very much. I've now realised that worship is more than just singing and music. It's also drama. (laughs) I'm sure that Paul wants to broaden our understanding of worship. The kind of worship that God desires from us, worship God's way, involves all of life lived in response to God's mercy. But this isn't just an intellectual exercise. Paul wants to ask, are you worshipping God's way? Not just do you understand it, are you doing it? This, friends, is where the rubber hits the road. Are you giving God your whole self and putting him at the centre of every area of your life? Are you longing to put into effect every part of God's word in every part of your life? Do you have a heartfelt pursuit of honouring God that shows itself in a changed life? These questions aren't easy or comfortable, but the worship that God desires is just so much more than the pretense of being Christian on a Sunday. If we aren't prepared to worship God's way, we may as well be offering him a cheese sandwich. We need to change. Do we reverence God enough to change our lifestyle dramatically? Here at Chatswood, we sing songs about God's mercy. We pray about God's mercy. We hear talks about God's mercy. Are we compelled by the mercy that God has shown us to worship God's way? Friends, are you worshipping God's way? Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the great mercy that you have shown us in the gospel. Thank you that even though we are undeserving, you have shown mercy to us through the death of your son on our behalf. Father, we do pray that you may grant us such an understanding of your mercy to us that we will all press on to a deeper commitment to live our lives for you. We pray for a more profound grasp of the gospel and a passion to be obedient to it. We pray, Father, that our congregation will be one in which relationships are radically different and in which we express our worship of you in humble service of one another. And we pray all these things for the honour of your Son. Amen.